0: Okay, welcome to Progressive News Network, our Sunday show. I'm Janine Molloff, your producer and host. Well, I realize it's the day of the big game, and obviously I'm not a sports fan or even a football fan, but I just want to remind our audience uh, that basically our shows are all archived, so you can download them, you can listen to them at your convenience and discretion. So today... It's Sunday, uh, January 23rd, 2022, and the topic that you saw in the advert, if you looked, was Supreme Court COVID vaccine mandate case rulings could destroy democracy, okay? What that means is that we just, and and actually, these cases were already decided. Basically, about a couple weeks ago, the Supreme Court accepted two cases regarding COVID vaccine uh, mandates and they were decided. uh, One basically slapped down President Biden's alleged vaccine mandate for federal employees and those that are contractors that are being paid through federal funds. Now, keep in mind, the corporate media basically uh, incorrectly named these vaccine mandates. They're not. All right. President Biden's uh, issue through OSHA was very simple. It was If you are a federal employee or if you're a contractor who's being paid through federal funds, the federal government has the right to decide what conditions the contract is going to demand, just like anything else in contract law. And this condition was that all employees had to either be fully vaccinated by a certain date or submit to weekly COVID testing and wear a mask in the workplace at all times. That is hardly a tyrannical vaccine mandate. But once again, you have the anti-vax and anti-mask, what I call COVID-iots losing their, their, their marbles over this one. So I'm going to discuss the ramification of the two COVID vaccine mandate cases the Supreme Court ruled on and what they actually mean for the survival of democracy yourself. Now, before you think, oh, wow, this sounds so melodramatic it isn't. A lot of people don't understand how the Supreme Court truly works. Often they accept cases that look very boring on the surface, but within the negotiations, within the ruling, there's some pretty important stuff. Uh, And so it's not like watching law and order, okay? It's much um, much more complicated, I think, needlessly. But anyway, So these cases on the surface, these two COVID COVID vaccine mandate cases, they look really benign on the surface, but the legal, what passes for legal reasoning, and I'm putting that in air quotes, used by unelected conservative judges could essentially destroy the last shred of democracy itself as the court uses these cases as the excuse to steal power From the executive and legislative branches now essentially these two cases serve as in my opinion a litmus test to destroy any enforcement mechanisms of our regulatory agencies and these enforcement mechanisms you know those pesky uh, federal agency regulations that uh, republicans and corporate people absolutely despise those are the regulations that help to safeguard our food supply They ensure that the medical personnel treating you are, for instance, properly credentialed. Um, You know, they make sure that on the workplace you're not uh, exposed to toxins, you know, such as workers were when they were dumping dioxin-laced soil in, in the Ozarks, you know, back in the 60s and 70s. So these regulations are there for a reason. They corrected a lot of past abuses, and help to make sure that when you go to the grocery store, the food you buy is safe to consume, okay, that when you go and, uh, you know, hire, say, a plumber, they're properly credentialed. These regulations are important, and again, they're the regulations that essentially reversed the savage corporate abuses that were, you know, seen in the Sinclair Lewis classic, The Jungle, and I urge everyone to read that. This this is our big story this week. Now, next, I'm going to discuss the mockery of the U.S. Senate as Republicans aided by two alleged Democrats blocked voting rights this week because they refused to amend the rules of the silent filibuster. And then, finally, I will present, um, we have our Jackass of the Week Award, and this is for political treachery and cowardice, uh, Basically, the heights of what I call jackassery. So, Dr. Rashad Ritchie, he talks about Karen and Karenicity. I borrowed a page from him, and I'm talking about political jackasses and what I call jackassery. So, let's go into the big story. So, as I was reading the documents covering the story, and, and don't mind if I, you know, take a few pauses here and there. Um, I have to keep drinking fluid so I don't lose my voice. Um, one of the Supreme Court justices, one of the few liberals left, Justice Elena Kagan, um, is explaining something further in the documentation for this story, and it's regarding what's called the non-delegation doctrine. And the non-delegation doctrine is, in my opinion, a legal fiction. It's, it's never mentioned in the Constitution ever, There is, I think, one mention, it was either James Madison or Alexander Hamilton, it's in my notes, we'll get to it, but it's just an excuse to present a case um, for the destruction of federal agencies, so that every time an agency, every time a, a federal law is passed, for instance, and let's say it's a federal law that's meant... Uh, to increase safety for workers on the job. Maybe it's to make sure that when you buy milk, the milk for your children, the milk is safe for your children to consume and doesn't contain anything that might be a carcinogen, uh, things of that nature. And again, big business hates these regulations. Essentially, they, they hate anything, any law or regulation that interferes with what can only be called predatory capitalistic profit, because it is predatory, all right? Um, And so they're using this non-delegation doctrine as a way to give legal cover for something that is nothing but a power grab by the judiciary, all right? So let's look at this. The threat to, this is what Kagan had to say. Um, You know, she was responding to the threat to responsible government, Um, its, it's hard to overstate, quote, if open-ended delegations are unconstitutional, then most of government is unconstitutional, dependent as Congress is on the need to give discretion to executive officials to implement its programs, end quote. And so what she's talking about is the non-delegation doctrine, which is what these conservative judges like uh, Gorsuch were brought in for, is basically saying that executive branch, namely the president, as well as these agencies created by congress to enforce these regulations that they don't they shouldn't have any power to determine those regulations that whenever they want something done they're going to have to trot back to congress to get a vote on every little nonsense which basically would be a de facto deregulation of everything and but this is exactly what big business wants zero regulations they they want to operate like they do in China, where they can pretty much do what they want as long as they don't uh, cross the Chinese dictator on purely political issues. You know, the corruption in China regarding manufacturing safety as well as human rights abuses is endemic It's all over the place. There's very little consumer protection in China except for the very rich. And now they're using, not unsurprisingly, they're using the GOP as their handmaidens they want to end safety regulations and human rights for workers here. And they're using the non-delegation doctrine and another thing called the major questions principle to try and justify it technically, legally. Non-delegation falls, in my opinion, in the same category of um, judicial bullshit as Citizens United and corporations as people, all right? But I, have, I remember hearing conservatives complain about government regulation for decades now. So there's nothing new here. Okay, let's move on. So this first article that backs up what I'm saying was written by Ian Milheiser on Vox. And if you don't have an opportunity, if you haven't read Vox online, I urge you to do so. They do what they call explanatory journalism, where they really take these these uh, technically difficult issues and they explain it so the average person can understand it. Um, but they retain all the critical attributes, all the important points. They don't water it down, but they do explain it. And Vox, spelled V-O-X, uh, is wonderful. And, of course, this author is Ian Millhiser, who I think is brilliant. This was... Um, written let's see well it was updated december 22nd 2021 so the headline is the supreme court showdown over biden's vaccine policies explained biden's vaccination policies could save thousands of lives the supreme court could toss them out anyway and you know we now know that of the two cases the conservatives got their way on one and lost temporarily on the other This, we know that as of January 13th, the Supreme Court overturned the Biden administration's rule, which required that most workers uh, be vaccinated against COVID-19 or regularly tested for the disease. And when they say most workers, they mean federal workers or workers that are, um, you know, that, that work as contractors. And it it would have saved a lot of lives. The Supreme Court did allow, though, in the other case, which was a much narrow, narrower rule, and that was the one through the Centers for Medicaid, Medicare and Medicaid, or CMS. That rule does require healthcare providers that accept either Medicare or Medicaid to be fully vaccinated. The Supreme Court allowed that one to stand. Now before the anti-vaxxers start having their, you know, brains, well, their brains explode with what little gray matter they have. You know, understand this. This these two cases aren't just about COVID-19, they're not just about vaccination mandates. They're about at a deeper level. This is a press these are precedent-setting cases. They're about setting the stage for using the non-delegation doctrine to essentially end pretty much all government regulation that big business doesn't like. Okay. Keep in mind, our, our judicial system is such, everything relies on what's called precedent, not to be confused with the president. Precedent, P-R-E-C-E-D-E-N-T, comes from the word precede, precede, P-R-E-C-E-D-E. In other words, what came before. So that basically, judge, judgments are supposed to be based on what was accepted law that came before, unless there was an acceptable and a, a, an acceptable challenge that proved that the precedent that came before wasn't um, shouldn't have been. All right. So this, let's talk about these two cases. All right. Now. The one involving Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, which is otherwise referred to as CMS, pretty clear cut, all right? Now, Judge Kavanaugh voted with the liberals on this one, and he took a lot of flack for it. Uh, And again, I'm not defending Kavanaugh on anything else, believe believe me. Uh, Brat Kavanaugh, yeah, in my opinion, he should have faced legal consequences for you know, for rape. But once again, let's let's move on. Um, but he sided with the liberals on this one, and it was pretty clear cut. I mean, think about it. Whether you're pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine, pro-mask, anti-mask, let's say you have a grandma and she is in a nursing home or a parent or even a child that's maybe undergoing, God forbid, cancer treatment. Do you want them treated by health care providers that refuse to vaccinate against COVID and refuse to mask? Think about it, especially refusing to vaccinate when you know that they are medically vulnerable. You know, when you go into be treated medically, there is a reasonable expectation that those providing the health care you need, especially if you're medically vulnerable at the time, that they will do what constitutes sound medical advice regarding all vaccines and the vaccines are safe all right i'm tired of hearing this nonsense that it's poison prove that it's poison it's not poison all right do you honestly think that those of us who are fully vaccinated would still be talking here i'm fully vaccinated and boosted do you honestly think i would still be on air if the vaccines were poison good god um so you know, once again, you have a right to assume that, and it, there's, it's perfectly reasonable that the uh, medical ca- medical centers that accept Medicare and Medicaid patients, which who usually are more medically vulnerable for a variety of reasons, yes, the healthcare providers should be forced to be fully vaccinated and boosted. It's a no-brainer. Now the other case involves an emergency rule from OSHA, which is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Now, that particular emergency rule demands that most employers have to do one of these two poss- one of these two requirements: that most employers must either require that their employees be vaccinated. so this isn't just for I, I stand corrected. I said earlier in the show this was just about federal employees. I was wrong. I misread. It is for most employees, period. Um, that most employers must either require that their employees be vaccinated, and I assume be able to prove they're fully vaccinated, or these same employers have to take various steps to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. And I'm assuming that those, those mitigation steps would involve if you're, for whatever reason, not vaccinated, your employer then, yes, can say, you must wear a mask at all times, it must cover both your mouth and your nose, all right, and so on and so forth. And you must be tested regularly. Again, where is the problem with this? You know, employers require drug tests. Even though what you do on your own time is your own business, I can only think of a few, um, a few type of jobs that where drug tests would actually be um, relevant, like if you're an airplane pilot or obviously a medical medical doctor or nurse, Uh, if you're driving a bus, things that involve where basically you have other people's lives in your hands. I don't think clerical workers should have to take (laughs) drug tests. I don't think that the average worker should have to do this, and yet everybody accepts that, even though that is really an unnecessary intrusion into your privacy. But they won't take the vaccine. And, again, you vaccinate not just to protect yourself. You vaccinate to protect others. Now, backing up a little bit, there's a lot of nonsense out there saying, well, people that are fully vaccinated are getting breakthrough cases anyway. That's true. They are, especially if they're, even if they're vaccinated and boosted. But they're not dying from it. And furthermore, not only are they not dying from it, these fully vaccinated people, these fully vaccinated people aren't being admitted to the hospital either. And subsequently, they're not clogging up our hospitals, unvaccinated COVID patients. We're at a point now where our medical system is about to break. And we have basically so many unvaccinated COVID patients dying in the hospitals unnecessarily. And that's sad enough, but then when you have to add the fact that their presence flooding our medical system is keeping other people with serious medical conditions from receiving the treatment they need. So yes, you vaccinate to protect others, and it is, I can understand if you have, and I know I'm digressing a bit, I can understand if you have a true true uh, um, medical condition that the vaccine will put your life in, or health in danger. And as long as it's diagnosed by a, a fully credentialed physician and you can prove it's fine. But there's no excuse for anyone else. For everyone else, the vaccines, yes, they are safe, and frankly, yes, it is selfish to refuse to vaccinate. I'm not even going to hear that nonsense anymore. So that's the, the rule that was struck down was the OSHA rule, which demands that most employers say, look, You either have to be fully vaccinated and prove that you are, or you have to wear a mask at all times, and then you have to have weekly COVID tests. Nothing unreasonable about it. Right after that rule took effect, there was a right-wing panel that um, basically went to court, and they raced to the uh, uh, Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. And the Fifth Circuit is notoriously... um, you know, ultra-conservative, and it's it's ridiculous. So basically that case was transferred to the Sixth Circuit, which is more centrist, if you will. Um, but what happened was, um, well, basically what happened was the Fifth Circuit stopped, blocked everything and made a ruling so that by the time it got to the Sixth Circuit, there wasn't much they could do about it. So let's kind of go into the background here. I don't want to get into too much because we'll lose too much time. But basically, here's what happened. Um, we have here, according to this piece by uh, Ian Milheiser, he quoted a conservative law professor um, by the name of Jonathan Adler. And Adler was, according to this, a one-time crusader against Obamacare, according to Vox.com. But Adler wrote, quote, the CMS rule, in other words, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, um, the CMS rule can be justified as a measure to protect Medicare and Medicaid recipients, which is something CMS clearly has the authority to do, end quote. And he's right, okay? So let's go on. The OSHA case and CMS case what they're really about is they are, they turn on the power of federal agencies, in other words, to create what are considered binding regulations. All right, so you kind of think, well, what right do these agencies have to create the regulations? Well, you have to understand the practical the practicality of governing. First of all, uh, Congress passes a lot of laws, and there's not enough hours in a year to get Congress to be able to decide on every little regulation. Furthermore, these agencies are often staffed by experts in those areas who are better prepared to decide what constitutes good regulations regarding whether it is air quality or um, the the, uh, safety of a particular medicine, things of that nature. Most of Congress is either attorneys or business people, and they're not qualified to do this. So they delegate just like any reasonable person what congress delegates that authority to create reasonable regulations not everything but reasonable regulations that are consistent with the way certain laws were written regarding those agencies on a daily basis okay and those agencies the heads of those agencies are part of a presidential cabinet all right That's what it is. It's an issue of practicality. But the Federalist Society has really been pushing this non-delegation doctrine because what they want to do is deregulate everything. You have to remember, one of their little crony henchmen, Grover Norquist, used to brag about how he wanted to shrink government functions to uh, such a small issue that it could be drowned in a bathtub. This is not responsible governance on their part. Okay. So on the one hand, these cases, yes, are about vaccine mandates. And again, at a surface level, yes, vaccines do prevent worse disease. Vaccines are not poison. Vaccines work by introducing a very small amount of whatever the disease is into your bloodstream usually it's a dead part of it dead part of whatever but into your bloodstream so your body can build up antibodies and fight it and it's worked you know we have essentially cured polio measles um, tuberculosis if you get the vaccine that is and many others smallpox and it it takes time but it works but now vaccines are bad because we have a sizable part of the American public that are essential that are basically scientifically illiterate. Let's just call it for what it is. So let's look at these two cases, especially the OSHA case. That's what we're going to concentrate on. So this is really the story, according to millheiser a tale of two circuits is what he calls it. So you've got the fifth, the, the appeals court of the fifth circuit and the appeals court of the sixth circuit. All right and there's been lawsuits challenging the OSHA rule um here this on this particular ruling this particular OSHA rule it changed a little bit and so what happened was this 10 days after the OSHA rule was announced there was a federal statute that required the judiciary conduct a lottery to decide which which court which circuit in the Court of Appeals would actually hear all these cases. Now the Sixth Circuit won the lottery, and the Sixth Circuit has a history of being more centrist. They actually rely on evidence and so on and so forth. Um, and there was so there there was kind of this unusual thing that happened though. There was a lawsuit called BST Holdings versus OSHA, and this brief period. It was filed in the Fifth Circuit, and I'm reading straight from Milheiser's article, quote, but before the lottery took place and the case was transferred to the Sixth, um, so let let me go back here. So here's what Milheiser wrote. Sorry about that. Quote, one upshot of this unusual process, in other words, the lottery, is that there was a brief period after a lawsuit called BST Holdings v. OSHA was filed in the Fifth Circuit. But before the lottery took place and the case was transferred to the sixth, when an especially conservative Fifth Circuit panel had jurisdiction over the OSHA rule. So there was a little trickery to see to make sure this OSHA rule hit a specific judge. And that and to go further what Milheiser wrote, quote, "and that panel raced to hand down a decision blocking the rule before the case could be taken away from them." end quote, okay. And this was also in Vox.com. Now, to me, that indicates that the Fifth Circuit judge most likely had already decided how to rule before even hearing the facts, okay, which is judicial malfeasance. You know, they're supposed to listen to the facts first, not, you know, not decide before hearing the facts. But that is exactly what the judge in the Fifth Circuit, a Trump appointee named Kurt Engelhardt, did. So the opinion in BST Holdings, was written by this Trump appointee, Judge Kurt Englehart. And according to um, according to millheiser it's, quote, riddled with errors, some of them obvious and egregious, end quote. And they give an example. So, for instance, the OSHA Act, which is the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970. All right, the, the name is important, actually. You'll see in a little bit. That's the federal law that allows OSHA to regulate workplaces for safety. That law, as I said, it allows OSHA to create, quote, an emergency temporary standard, end quote, regarding workplace health or safety if the agency determines that such a standard is necessary. Okay, this is a direct quote. I'm going to read it again. So the OSHA Act does the following. Quote, it permits OSHA to issue an emergency temporary standard regarding workplace health or safety if the agency determines that such a standard is necessary to protect workers from a, quote, grave danger from exposure to substances or agents determined to be toxic or physically harmful, end quote. So what happened in the BST Holdings case? And why am I saying that Judge Engelhart is most likely corrupt? Well, he made a lot of crazy claims. Now keep in mind, your own when you're a judge, your own personal opinions are they may play into it, but you're supposed to rule on facts. Well Judge Engelhart claimed that for one that the COVID nineteen virus quote does not qualify as an agent that is physically harmful, end quote. In fact, Judge Engelhart wrote that, quote, an airborne virus is beyond the purview of an OSHA emergency rule, end quote. Now, keep in mind, I don't know what reality Judge Engelhart lives in, but to date, in slightly under two years, COVID virus has killed some 820,000 Americans. Now compare that to the number of deaths among American soldiers during all of World War II. I believe that was some 405,000. So again, Judge Engelhart appears to be writing either either he's a nut job who really believes this nonsense, or he's writing what he was instructed to write. In which case, yes. He refused to look at the evidence and he is corrupt. Now, further in that opinion, Englehart relies on this constitutional argument that really is almost identical to this, what's called a discredited interpretation of the Constitution. And this is something that the Supreme Court used to strike down federal child labor laws in 1918. And that um, basically, what it was is in 1918, back up a little bit, there was a case called Hammer v. Dagenhart, and, the, and basically the Supreme Court was looking at well, the, Keaton-Owen, the Keaton-Owen Child Labor Act of 1916. Now, the Child Labor Act of 1916 established age limitations for workers that produce goods for interstate commerce. And in Hammer v. Dagenhart, the Supreme Court struck down the Child Labor Act. Think about how really slimy that is. That that um think about it, that's on a level almost with Dred Scott. And apparently Judge Engelhart's using similar flawed legal reasoning, if you can call it that. Judge Engelhart claimed that OSHA's COVID regulations aren't valid. Get this, because he said that OSHA isn't a health agency. And Engelhart wrote, "quote Occupational safety administrations do not make health policy." End quote. <clears throat> now, apparently, Judge Engelhart is either so lazy or, I don't know, so stupid. He didn't bother to look at even the name of the agency, because it's right there in the agency's name. OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Right there in the name, it says that OSHA makes health policy in our nation's workplaces. How How we could forget that, I'll never know. So... You know, Nilheiser's looking, he's going, look, after reading the BST Holdings case, you know, he said the following, quote, It is difficult to avoid the conclusion that the Fifth Circuit panel simply started with the conclusion it wanted to reach that the OSHA rule must be struck down as fast as possible and then raced to toss any argument that could possibly support that conclusion into a published opinion before the case could be transferred to a less ideological circuit, end quote. Okay. That's what Milheiser wrote. Translation, this is a polite way of accusing Judge Kurt Engelhart of the obvious, namely deciding a case before it's even heard, deciding a ruling, what he's going to write in the ruling, before even hearing the evidence. And frankly, judicial malfeasance right there. So we have another judge, and her name's Judge Jane Stranch, and she did the opposite of Engelhart, um, and she's in the Sixth Circuit. And she did, gave an opinion in another case, Ray, MCP number 165, okay? Now, all that is basically a group of OSHA cases that were consolidated into one case. They were transferred to the Sixth Circuit. Now, Strange, Judge Stranch and another, was formerly a, a labor and employment uh, lawyer, so she knows a lot about the OSHA Act. And Judge Stranch, quote, quotes, excuse me, Judge Stranch, at length, quote, from authoritative sources establishing that OSHA has broad authority to protect workers from communicable diseases, including the OSHA Act itself, which tasks OSHA with providing medical criteria, as documented by OSHA.gov, which will assure insofar as practicable that no employee will suffer diminished health, functional capacity, or life expectancy as a result of his work experience, end quote. Which is basically saying, yeah, OSHA does have the authority to make, uh, to make policy regarding health standards at the workplace. And then she kind of took a, little dig at Judge Engelhart in a footnote, uh, pointing out that Judge Engelhart didn't even bother to pay attention or learn the name of the agency that he, that he was supposed to judge. Okay. So let's, you know, let's move on. So this all sounds kind of complicated. What does this have to do with dis- dismantling any federal regulation a lot? So they're using this one agency, and OSHA's been a thorn in the side of big business for a long time, okay? So for instance, if you were a teacher and you taught in old buildings, and let's say those old buildings had a lot of asbestos in them, okay, OSHA was the one that said, no, you've got to get rid of the asbestos. Because again, your employer doesn't have the right to subject you to dangerous working conditions that can threaten either your life or your health. And think about what's happening right now. Whether you work in a grocery store, a school, a restaurant, whatever, you, your life and, and, and your health is being threatened because, once again, these anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers are deciding that they have the right to infect others, period. And your employer is doing nothing to protect you. And if you do get sick with COVID, they're telling you you have to show up anyway. That's a direct violation of OSHA. So this is very, they're using COVID. I think this is using COVID as the as the, top, the litmus test to basically dismantle OSHA and any other regulations they don't like using this non-delegation doctrine. Again, that's what these cases are really about. That and the fact that the courts want more power. And the Supreme Court could steal it with these vaccination cases. Keep in mind, judges, especially the Supreme Court, they're unelected. So the OSHA Act is what permits OSHA to hand down what's called this emergency rule. All right? And this emergency rule is allowed if that rule is deemed necessary to, quote, shield workers from a grave danger from exposure to substances, or agents, again, determined to be toxic or physically harmful. Seems pretty reasonable to me, but once again, how dare liberals want to actually, I don't know, protect the average worker from workplace hazards? How dare workers not want to come down with um, COPD or cancer or whatever else by being exposed to toxics at the workplace because their employer doesn't want to follow some basic rules because they're counting every penny like Ebenezer Scrooge. And, and again, this is the only thing that protects the average worker, make no mistake about it. So there is a separate federal law that allows CMS, or Centers for Medicaid uh, and Medicare Services, that does require hospitals and other health providers that receive either Medicare or Medicaid funds to comply with rules that the agency, quote, finds necessary in the interests of the health and safety of individuals who are furnished services in the institution, end quote. Again, reasonable. How many people have lost loved ones in nursing homes because there were nursing home workers that believed this nonsense and refused to get vaccinated? Refused to mask. They're putting your loved ones in mortal jeopardy. Okay. The fact is the emergency powers granted OSHA are rarely actually brought into are uh, rarely invoked. Okay? But this is a once in a century pandemic, so we've lost over 800,000 Americans. It makes sense. All right. And yeah, the emergency power that OSHA has is kind of razor thin legally speaking. It is, because you have judges and lawyers fighting and haggling over the meaning of the word, what constitutes necessary? When you look at this emergency, um, you know, emergency rule, what criterion are needed to declare this emergency rule as necessary to protect workers? So, you know, I get that. But... This is—it gets sneakier, okay. So there's lots of, of of lawyers that have admitted that, okay. But sometimes OSHA does exceed its statutory authority. Um, and again, Judge Strand talked about it. So let me back up here. I think I missed something, folks. <sighs> Judge, okay, so no, not Judge Strange. So there was another judge, Judge Julia Gibbons. Now, she is a George W. Bush appointee, and she does make the argument for what's called judicial restraint. That means that even if a judge personally disagrees with this, if the law says OSHA can do this, then you go along with it. And Judge Gibbons was quoted as saying, quote, reasonable minds may disagree on OSHA's approach to the pandemic, but we do not substitute our judgment for that of OSHA, which has been tasked by Congress with policymaking responsibilities, end quote. And, and again, that seems reasonable too. But remember, OSHA has medical personnel on board. You know, judges aren't medical personnel. And someone has to decide how these regulations are going to be implemented. Now, when you go back down here, though. Okay, sorry, got a little lost here. There is, we have another judge. Seems like I oh, got all these judges, right? Another judge, Judge Joan Larson, um, and she is one of some one of many conservative judges that have used, shall we say, more ambitious arguments um, to get rid of OSHA. All right. And Judge Joan Larson issued a dissenting opinion in the Sixth Circuit's MCP case. Larson, Joan Larson is a Trump appointee, and she argues that not only did OSHA go beyond its statutory authority by issuing the COVID rule, her opinion, she has several pages discussing what's called the so-called major questions doctrine. And this goes hand-in-hand with non delegation Okay, so the Supreme Court has used the Major Questions Doctrine Stop Agency Treaty Regulations that a majority of the courts thought was too broad or too ambitious, um, and this Major Questions Doctrine was also cited by that crooked judge, Judge Englehart, and that was actually one of several items he listed. Now, the problem with this major questions doctrine is it's really vague, all right? Uh, Judge Stranch wrote in her, an opinion siding with OSHA about the major questions doctrine, and Judge Stranch wrote, quote, The doctrine itself is hardly a model of clarity, and its precise contour, specifically what constitutes a question concerning deep economic and political significance, remain undefined, end quote. The problem with really vague doctrine like this, whether you're trying to use to actually halt regulation that is supposed to protect us, where are the criterion? You know, a list of circumstances where it would apply. So, and and it's problematic when a court hands down a a ruling that contains really vague and open-ended rules. And you think, well, why is that? Because when courts do that, when courts hand down rulings that are characterized by extremely vague and open-ended rules, they are, quote, effectively transferring power to themselves. as documented at vox.com. And there's some questions they have to ask themselves. Okay? Things like when you're talking about major questions doctrine, how significant must an agency decision be before it qualifies as a matter of, quote, vast economic and political significance, end quote. All right? We don't know. It seems like these waters are very muddied. So not too long ago, the Supreme Court warned judges against relying on really vague justifications when they, when they want to second guess a federal agency. This is according to millheiser. In fact, in one decision, um, seminal decision, Millheiser writes that, quote, courts should be reluctant to second-guess federal agencies' regulatory decisions for two reasons. And then the two reasons are this. Courts, in other words, courts shouldn't second-guess federal agencies or should be reluctant to do so. One, these federal agencies usually have specialized experts in that area of expertise, and thus have more expertise than judges and you know that's rather obvious reason number two is that agencies do have greater democratic legitimacy than what is an unelected judiciary so that's what we're dealing with here and between this major questions doctrine and non-delegation they're picking away at the power of federal agencies to have power delegated to them So they can set up regulations and can operate. And if the the agencies can't do that, they have to trot to Congress every single time they want to try and do something, you can see what will happen, okay? Nothing will get done. They'll have to err on the side of caution and do nothing and let big business do what it will. And look at the agency they chose, these conservatives chose to attack, OSHA, the agency that's supposed to protect workers, Workers in terms of safety and in terms of threats to their health at the workplace. Very telling. Now, there was another piece here uh, in The Atlantic, and it was written by uh, Kimberly Whaley. Now, Kimberly Whaley is a law professor at the University of Baltimore. She also authored the book, quote, How to Read the Constitution and Why. And she wrote this piece. It ran January 7th, just a few weeks ago. The headline is the vaccine mandate case is about so much more than vaccine mandates. This could be the start of a major dismantling of the federal government, end quote. And all that stuff that led up to this, yeah, that's what they're doing in a nutshell. A little more cheeks. I'm getting a little hoarse now. So she's talking about the same pair of cases. And, you know, Whaley. Professor Whaley admits, yeah, these cases um, are before the court to, quote, resolve whether a president can even temporarily require vaccine and testing protocols during a pandemic to protect public health, end quote. And on the surface, that's true. But Whaley goes on to say, quote, but the questions the court may examine are much more sweeping with enormous implications for the future of the executive branch and the massive swaths of American life it regulates, end quote. And then she goes straight into the power that grants that's granted to these agencies through various things. So it's Article One of the Constitution, and basically says that, quote, all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in the Congress of the United States. But Whaley explains that the Constitution doesn't actually define legislative powers just doesn't. It doesn't say the legislative powers are A, B, C, D, E and list them. It doesn't do that. Now, the Constitution, she goes on to say, does suggest that there are some undefined powers granted to the other two branches of government, and that's the President's executive power under Article 2 and the federal courts or the judiciary, judicial power, under Article 3. Professor Whaley goes on to explain that, yeah, in a practical matter, lawmaking or legislative legislation that lawmaking power that legislative power if you will quote might be defined as writing rules that operate prospectively to constrain conduct quote thou shall not discriminate on the base of disability on the basis of disability for example is a law that congress effectively created in 1990 with the americans with disabilities act end quote okay she gives enough, Professor Whaley gives another example. Um, she mentions OSHA, the OSHA, Act, which is the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970, as well as Titles 8 and Titles 19 of the Social Security Act, which in 1965 created Medicare, the federal insurance, uh, the federal health insurance program for people age 65 and older, and then Medicaid as well. Uh, for people low income. And these two statutes um, really provide what she says is the legal justification for Biden's vaccine or test mandates. Now, Professor Whaley goes on to say the following, quote, the crucial legal question in the case is now before the Supreme Court is less about whether Biden properly exercised the authority granted to him in these acts than whether Congress acted constitutionally and passing along the authority to the executive branch to make such rules in the first place. This is a very important end quote. It's a very important statement. Basically, Professor Whaley saying the big legal question here, that is in front of the Supreme Court. The question, uh, the big question behind this, whether the this, this smaller question of whether or not uh, the president can issue vaccine mandates. It's really about whether. The authority granted to the president, granted to the executive branch in these acts, like the OSH Act, did Congress act constitutionally in delegating or passing this authority to the executive branch to make these rules in the first place? And you can see where non-delegation fits in there. Non-delegation is saying, no, Congress didn't act right, and the president doesn't have a right to delegate authority to agency has to make to make the nuts and bolts regulation that operates these agencies that no under non-delegation each agency would have to trot back to congress for ev- excuse my language for every little fart that basically neuters neuters renders impotent these agencies in terms of their being able to do what they were tasked with doing now, Professor Whaley goes on to say, quote, if the Supreme Court's conservative majority decides that the delegation was improper, a position certain justices appear to have endorsed, okay, a cascade of deregulation could begin, reversible only with a formal amendment to the Constitution or a new majority on the court, both of which are all but impossible in the foreseeable future, end quote. This is really at the heart of the matter. They're using COVID as the excuse and COVID has become so such a political lightning rod. You know, people are like covid are screaming about their dubious liberty to infect others, but this is what it's really about. Take another hint, cup a little tea here. So she gives some other examples, but this is what it's really about. It goes further, all right? The federal government, well, not the federal government, um, the states have always had the legal right to demand vaccination. And the government has had a power to mandate vaccines. Uh, regardless of somebody claiming that it violates their due process or other objections. And this traces back, ironically, to a Supreme Court uh, decision in 1905 known as Jacobson v. Massachusetts. All right? We know this. They said, no, you don't have the right to infect others. And that's what they really said in Jacobson. You have to remember, when you refuse to vaccinate, it doesn't just impact you, it impacts others. And with COVID right now, when the president says it is a a pandemic of the unvaccinated, he's right. Because even though there are breakthrough infections, the people that are fully vaccinated and boosted, not only aren't dying, but they're not having to be hospitalized, okay? The other thing to consider is this, with vaccination, If enough people aren't vaccinated, more mutations will develop, and those mutations most likely, God forbid, but most likely, will not only be immune to vaccines, but most likely immune to our medicines as well, including monoclonal antibodies. You know, so once again, you know, when you, this is my own personal opinion, you know, you can compare it to, whether or not you're refusing to wear a seatbelt versus whether or not you're arguing for the right to drive drunk. You know, when you refuse to wear a seatbelt, the only person you're impacting is yourself. Personal choice. But when you decide you have the right to drive drunk and you don't want any legal consequences for your actions, now you're, you're hurting other people. You don't have that right. That is not a matter of personal choice. So... Again, what Professor Wiley is really saying is what's really at stake here in these COVID cases is, quote, Congress's authority to hand off or delegate, in other words, to hand off regulatory power to unelected executive branch agency personnel writ, writ large, which, is, which has long been a point of debate among lawyers, judges, and academics, end quote. Keep in mind, each one of these acts contains thousands of pages. The practical aspects of it, if if these agency heads have to trot back to Congress every time they want to change the slightest little thing, everything comes to a grinding halt, which is exactly what big business wants. And non-delegation's been around. That's the other thing. It's been around for a while. The last time it was used was during FDR's term. Okay. So if I'm kind of all over the place, I apologize. You have to remember, nothing in the practice of law is straightforward. That's one thing I've learned. That and, in my opinion, lawyers are the worst writers in the world because, God forbid, they should actually have to state something directly. They'll argue, well, the, the principles are so complex. Nonsense. The teacher in me comes on and says, look, if you understand something you should be able to take it out of the jargon and explain it directly and in plain terms and if you can't do that it means you truly don't understand it just saying so fdr franklin delano roosevelt the new deal he had you know he was going after um the banksters he was going after the uh you know the monetary aristocrats if you will the height of the depression, people are starving to death. And so, you know, there's a section here, FDR, non-delegation. This is how conservatives killed other New Deal programs. There were other programs FDR couldn't get off the ground, though. So FDR's National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933. Now, this act, quote, authorized the president to approve, quote, codes of fair competition, end quote, that affected the poultry industry, and enabled the executive branch to pass rules prohibiting the interstate transportation of petroleum products, okay? Think about that phrase, codes of fair competition. Do you honestly believe big business wants that? Of course not. If you are a small business person or a mid-sized business, maybe you are more innovative, maybe you have... They don't want fair competition. They'll flood the market with cheaper goods and drive you out of business. Okay, so let's look at this. The Supreme Court killed the Industrial Recovery Act that pushed codes of fair competition in a, in a Supreme Court case called Ala. Schechter Poultry Corporation versus United States. And guess what they did? They used non-delegation, of course. Keep in mind, FDR's National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933, even though it talked about the poultry industry, when you're talking about codes of fair competition, I I could see that act is setting up precedent for codes of fair competition throughout all business. So, of course, you know big business had to fight them on that one. So... The case ALA Schechter-Poultry Corporation versus the United States, um, the Supreme Court issued two decisions. Um, and they said, quote, Congress is not permitted to abdicate or to transfer to others the essential legislative functions with which it is thus vested, end quote. And they went on saying the president's are charged with executing, in other words, implementing the law, not creating it, okay? There was another case um, that the the court mentioned called the Panama Refining Company versus Ryan, and they said, quote, Congress left the matter to the President without standard or rule to be dealt with as he pleased, um, thus permitting such a breadth of authorized action as essentially to commit to the President the functions of a legislature rather than those of an executive or administrator or administrative officer end quote. Again, this is non-delegation. The, the Supreme Court back then is saying these laws can't can't stand because um, excuse me it's accusing Congress of abdicating their responsibility and sending it to the President. And you think, okay, why is it a transfer of power to the executive? Because these Agent, and how, that, how does that tie in to, to federal agencies? Well, these federal agencies are headed by people that are part of a presidential cabinet, okay? And so these two cases formed, according to Professor Whaley, the legal frame, framework known as the non-delegation doctrine. And that's the idea that Congress has no right to delegate or give its power away. Now, there was a third decision in 1936 known as Carter versus Carter Coal Company. And Whaley wrote, quote, in which the court held that Congress had violated the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment by delegating legislative authority to a private industry group of coal producers and miners. The non- okay, so with this case, the non-delegation doctrine was effectively left for dead. Okay. <coughs> So in 1943, um, there was a case called National Broadcasting Company v. United States. The Supreme Court rejected the non-delegation challenge to a statute that gave the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, uh, uh, the power to allocate, in other words, give out broadcast licenses uh, in a manner that, quote, generically serves the public interest, convenience, and necessity. Okay. So in that case, National Broadcasting Company v. United States in 1943, the court's saying, look, you can't use non-delegation. The, the Congress acted right. They gave the power <clears throat> through a statute, through a law that passed the Federal Communications Commission with the right to determine these, these, uh, these rules, including the rule that says that they give broadcast license. Uh, in a way that, quote, serves the public interest, convenience, and necessity. So up till recently, after that case, as long as Congress included in a law this idea of, quote, an intelligible principle, end quote, to guide an agency that it's constitutionally permitted, constitutionally allowed. Okay? So now we have non-delegation coming back. And I really believe that's the main reason why Neil Gorsuch was put on the, on the court. Neil Gorsuch has, throughout his entire legal career, been pushing to reinstitute this idea of the non-delegation doctrine. So, there's more stuff here. I'm not going to go through it all. Let's go through it. You can, all, you can read the article yourself. There's another piece written, uh, <coughs> excuse me, in the Atlantic again. <coughs> excuse me. A little more directly to the point. It's written by Julian Julian Davis Mortensen and Nicholas Badgley. The authors, Julian Davis Mortensen is a law professor at the University of Michigan, and Nicholas Badgley is also a law professor at the University of Michigan. And the headline for this article is, the following. <clears throat> Sorry, folks, it's around this time I start losing my voice. There's no historical justification for one of the most dangerous ideas in American law. The founders didn't believe that broad delegations of legislative power violated the Constitution, but conservative originalists keep insisting otherwise. So they're basically saying that this idea of non-delegation is a legal fiction that conservatives made up, that they made, that conservatives, like, especially through the Federalist Society, pardon my language, made this shit up, okay, not just the Federalist Society, but dating back the conservatives historically, so the beginning of their article is saying that, you know, most of our government activity is based on this simple premise that it's okay for legislatures to authorize the executive branch to regulate things that the legislature itself can't handle or can't reach. You know, working conditions, pollution elections, financial products, mask wearing, etc. But the idea is now under attack. And they're using this non-delegation doctrine, this legal fiction, to dismantle all regulation. Let's be honest about it. And this article goes, on. I'm going to read this uh, direct quote. There are, quote. Their argument is grounded in a cursory selective review of, his, of the historical record. It simply falls apart and under any kind of serious scrutiny. Americans in 1789 didn't share the view that broad delegations of legislative power violated the Constitution. Indeed, they would have been baffled by the claim because governments throughout the Anglo-American world have long relied on this very technique without controversy. There wasn't any non-delegation doctrine at the founding and the question isn't close." End quote. Okay? And they give the reason because legislatures, not only agencies wouldn't be able to work, but legislatures, they wouldn't be able to function if they had to deal with the daily workings of every agency. And the people pushing non-delegation know this. They don't want these agencies to function. They want these agencies to fall apart. That's why they're pushing non-delegation. Do you honestly think that your workplace wants to put out money to put out to to protect you from any workplace hazards? Think again. If you believe that, I've got a bridge in Brooklyn I can sell you cheap. So, They go on to explain it and this non-delegation doctrine, all right, um, is, you know, really attacking any regulation, any agencies tasked with, you know, governing these, uh, enforcing these regulations, excuse me. Um, And these authors explain that the non-delegation doctrine is, quote, a largely forgotten relic of the Supreme Court's embarrassing and quickly abandoned resistance to the New Deal, the non-delegation doctrine would allow courts to strike down laws that, in their view, give the executive branch too much power with too little guidance, end quote. And they go on to say that the threat to responsible government is huge. Okay, and this is the quote that I led with, the idea that if open-ended delegations of power are unconstitutional, okay, in other words, if if, a, um, if an executive can't delegate um, a certain amount of power to agency heads that are well-versed in that particular area of expertise, if you call that unconstitutional, then Supreme Court Justice Elena, K- Elena Kagan said that, quote, then most of government is unconstitutional, dependent as Congress is on the need to give discretion to executive officials to implement its programs, end quote. Okay? So these people go on, so why why are these people pushing non-delegation? Well, they say, well, Justice Gorsuch, you know, comes down to this originalism crap. Gorsuch claimed and wrote in a 2019 dissent, quote, the framers understood that it would frustrate the system of government ordained by the Constitution if Congress could merely announce vague aspirations and then assign others the responsibility of adopting legislation to realize its goal, end quote. And most progressive lawyers just kind of ignored it, but it's gaining traction now. And it deals with originalism. And there was a new paper, um, that there's no such there was no such thing as non-delegation doctrine at the founding of this country or in the constitution and here's the quote quote to see why to see what i'm sorry let me start from the beginning quote in a new paper we demonstrate that this is from the authors of this particular paper quote in a new paper we demonstrate that there was no such thing as a non-delegation doctrine at the founding To see why, keep in mind that originalists want to discern the original public meaning of the Constitution. That can't be a secret or hidden meaning. It must be the meaning that the public, and in particular, the delegates to the state ratifying conventions, would have assigned to the Constitution's spare text. For originalists, the burden of proof is high. To justify a judicial assault on laws adopted by Congress and signed by the President, the historical evidence should be nothing short of bulletproof, end quote. So the authors of this paper are accusing the original, especially on the Supreme Court, of just what they're doing, a judicial assault on laws passed by Congress, especially laws regarding business regulations that, that big business doesn't want. And keep in mind, these justices are unelected. They don't represent any of us. They're, supposed, they're tasked with interpreting the law, not creating it, and that's exactly what they're trying to do using non-delegation. Okay, There's a lot more here. I'm not going to go into all of it. I will point out that um, the founders, according to these authors, the founders would have been really confused by the originalist claim that legislative power can't be delegated because the founders delegated it all the time. Parliament delegated it all the time. In fact, they go on to say that under the Articles of Confederation, which was before we had a Constitution, um, Alexander Hamilton explained, quote, if the New York Constitution forbids the grant of legislative power to the Union, then the powers granted under the Articles of Confederation are illegal and unconstitutional ought to be resumed, end quote. But they weren't because it didn't, all right? They weren't unconstitutional, okay? Um, And early Congresses, after Articles of Confederation, did delegate power, quite a bit of it, actually, Um, and they weren't just secondary issues. These were very important issues, Um, things like kind of getting together finances for a new country, regulating industry, governing territories, you know, finding a way to secure revenue, and then also defense, to guard against, you know, internal and external threats. These were all delegated. These authors give a few examples that were, that came from the first Congress, which was seated from 1789 to 1791. One of them was, one of the ways it was delegated, Congress readopted the Northwest Ordinance that gave power to the appointed governor of the Northwest Territory and three federal judges the power to issue the territory's entire civil and criminal code as may be necessary and best suited to the circumstances of the district without any other guidance, okay? So that's one thing that was delegated. That first Congress also delegated to, quote, foster industrial innovation. They adopted a patent law that gave the Secretary of State and the Secretary of War and the, and the Attorney General the power to grant patents to new inventions whenever they, quote, deem the invention or discovery sufficiently useful and, or important. That's the second time. Ta- ta- excuse me. That's the second time the First Congress delegated power. And the, the third example of the First Congress delegating power is Congress forbade trade or you know, any sort of trade with American Indian tribes unless they had a license. And they required all the licensees to be governed, quote, by such rules and regulations as the president shall prescribe, end quote. So where is Neil Gorsuch getting all this made-up bullshit? And that's what it is. Now, originalists disregard this stuff, and they like to point to a debate in the second Congress of when James Madison objected to a proposal that would have given the president authority to establish new post roads. Madison said, quote, there did not appear to be any necessity for alienating the powers of the House, and if this should take place, it would be a violation of the Constitution. However, end quote, what these authors point out is that if you read the entire debate, you'll find that that second Congress didn't agree with Madison. Okay. In fact, one of Madison's opponents said the following, that Congress was, quote, also empowered to coin money, and if no part of their power be delegable and delegated delegated somewhere else, he did not know, but they might be obliged to turn coiners and work in the mint themselves. Nay, they must even act as the part of executioners in punishing piracies committed on the high seas. So one of Madison's opponents is mocking Madison and just saying, look, if you can't delegate power... What are we going to do? We're going to coin the money ourselves? You know, can you imagine um, Judge Gorsuch painting on the seal on a dollar bill? That He's just calling it ludicrous, and it is ludicrous. Now, these are all the originalists' best evidence, but it doesn't work, okay? Um, and these law professors went through tens of thousands of pages in the ratification debates of the U.S. Constitution. Um, they went through tens of thousands of pages, early congressional debate, and all these originals can come up with is Madison's statement. Okay? So these authors go on to say that the historical record on, on the non-delegation doctrine is practically silent. And they go on to say the following, quote, the non-delegation doctrine didn't exist at the founding. It's a fable that originalists tell themselves about how enlightened people must have thought about the Constitution. For those suspicious of agency authority and centralized government, it makes for a comforting story. But it's just not true, end quote. Okay, so that's our big story. And I can see we're running low on time. So now, as we know, the Voting Rights Act wasn't going to come to a vote, and that's because every Senate Republican, all 50 of them, aided and abetted by two alleged Democrats, namely Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, blocked the voting rights bill coming to a vote by using the filibuster, the silent filibuster, and this is really something that is actually totally illegitimate. We've talked about it on the show before. The silent filibuster basically grants an unconstitutional veto power to a handful of senators, and everything comes to a grinding halt. And the reason it's an unconstitutional veto power is because it blocks debate, it blocks ending debate, and it blocks things coming to a vote. You have to have a supermajority of 60. And that's ludicrous. Now, the excuses given by Joe Manchin, especially by Kirsten Sinema, are that the Senate is there to prevent wild swings from the public. Translation. The U- U.S. senators are such a club of self-appointed aristocrats that they think we're just too stupid to be able to know what we need. That's all. Talk about condescending and insulting as hell. But that's what happened. And then you saw Kirsten Cinema, especially get up in front of the TV cameras and practically crying elephant tears and is going, I believe in voting rights, she said. But the bigger problem is the, the bigger disease is division in this country. A load of unadulterated bullshit. I feel like telling her, listen, Blondie, the division was already there. It has always been there. You know, Kirsten Cinema is a white, generically Christian woman. She's blonde. No one's ever going to confuse this woman with a, a racial, ethnic minority. She passes. And the fact that she's gay or bi or whatever is irrelevant as long as she keeps her mouth shut. She passes as a white woman. Any person of color is going to be shaking their head, knowing what I'm talking about. The fact is this. Kyrsten Cinema made a mockery of this entire issue. She just did. She has defied her constituents every step of the way. She has influence peddled to a level not seen since Tammany Hall, and blatantly so. All you have to do is go to OpenSecrets.com and look at Republicans are giving to her campaign coffers. The woman raised $28 million in one election cycle for a minimally po- populated state like Arizona. Do you think she did that just through Democrats and, and progressives? No, of course not. But she stood there and literally thumbed her nose at the rest of us. Period. And the fact is, we have a right... To decide how our government's going to be we have a right to voting rights that no legislative no state legislature can rescind but we won't get voting rights until they reform or end the silent filibuster and that means a couple of things one if they're going to filibuster make these sobs stand up there and do it the old-fashioned way and stand until they drop and two get rid of the supermajority rule filibuster ends with 51 votes that's it really that simple and if they get all the now of course with Mansion and Cinema, they're not going to be part of that they never had any intention of doing so I mean look at it from their point of view they're cashing in they are a king and queen maker because again divided senate with a president of their party and all they have to do is just hold out and they have sabotaged every good thing that we've tried to do This feeds into, again, the Jackass of the Week segment. Now, it'd be easy to say Kirsten Sinema is the Jackass of the Week, because she's frequently that, so is Joe Manchin. But this week, you know, I witnessed some major acts of jackassery, as you call it, coming from corporate media, and specifically, Meet the Press host, Chuck Todd. Now, I'll give you some background here. After Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema voted lockstep with the GOP to keep the silent filibuster intact, Sinema's own Democratic Party in Arizona voted to censure her, and they were right for doing so. They censured her for multiple reasons. Part of it was, yes, the filibuster vote, but part of it was also because she has gone against the wishes of her constituents, and she's defied them on minimum wage hikes. She's defied them on childcare. She's defied them on everything, and they've had it. So the fact that her own Democratic Party censured her, you know, in Arizona, but this issue came up really prominently this morning on Meet the Press, and Chuck Todd and his panel, they they defended poor little Kirsten. After all, how dare the rabble call out Kirsten Sinema for essentially blocking voting rights by voting to maintain the unconstitutional filibuster. In fact, Chuck Todd very blithely attempted to paint cinema as the victim, arguing that she was censured, quote, over an issue of tactics and not substance, end quote. Okay. And Todd's panel all agreed with the one exception of Simone Sanders. Now, let's face it. This issue of tactics and not substance, that is the same as the age-old civility or collegiality bromide. You know, the idea that, politicians and others can commit acts of sabotage against the people, sabotage democracy itself. You know, they can sabotage against the idea of equal representation, against the idea of one person, one vote, against human rights. As long as their presentation of these unethical, evil acts against democracy and human rights itself remains civil or, in air quotes, collegial. Now let's face it, I looked up Chuck Todd's bio. He grew up in Florida, in the suburbs, basically privileged. Never had a hard day in his life. And unfortunately, I don't know if he's just been paid off by his network or if he's just that clueless. Because a lot of times people that live segregated lives like that just don't get it. And I really don't care. He had a responsibility to do his homework, and he didn't. So, You know, I'm going to end this with a very simple quote from from scholar, noted scholar and human rights activist, Dr. Julianne Malveaux, when she said something on civility or using another synonym, collegiality. And Dr. Malveaux Malveaux very, very wisely said the following, quote, your collegiality is a noose around my neck, end quote. I can't do better than that. With that, I will end this show. I hope you will tune in again and again and again at your own convenience. All our shows are archived. Um, I hope you check out the Environmental Justice Report as well. That's on Thursdays every other week. And I urge you to check out my reporting on BuzzFlash as well. And with that, I say good night and God bless us.